0: Hi, it's um, Kalamoe, let me see, Monday morning, um, here in Baltimore, so that's uh, our first day of Kalamoe, and uh, there was a concatenation of events (laughs) that let me to say, you know, I'll just throw something out now, um, having to do with the Spiesen and things like that, because uh, (laughs) things can't, like I say, it's a concatenation of events, a few things came together, and it's rather amusing to some degree. Uh I think you saw that this guy in Israel, in the Misrata Briut, you know, one of the health ministry officials, who he obviously must be a super Hilanese, says a at the You know, that uh, this year you can't invite and He meant it wasn't being funny. And that's because and I get it, at least I think I do. I don't know the other guy. Some people are really cut off from traditional Jewish culture. And when they hear the word the they heard the, and, and, you know, and, and uh, you know, guests and so forth, he must have thought it meant that people invite guests, Lashbiz in modern Hebrews, you know, to provide, you know, hospitality and so forth. And he knows it is a custom, you invite Avram, Mutzig and Yaakov and so forth. <laughs> and so it comes out funny, they say, can't invite the uh, Obviously, the guy never even saw the movie. You know what I'm talking about, they made that movie years ago, not that long ago. Ushbizan, which I think got all kind of awards. Uh, it's a Fermi movie, it's actually, uh, what do you call it, Breslov, you understand? Uh, it's it's a Breslov type story. I've uh, taught courses in the past on the history of Hasidism in college. I think I'm the only one, I believe, which is funny. In other words, an external history of the Hasidic movement per se, as a phenomenon in modern history. You know, uh, Hasidism is a modern movement, is that correct? The Baal Shem Tov didn't live that long ago, and... Uh, it's one of the modern movements in Judaism. I know it sounds funny to say so because you don't usually put together Hasidus and uh, Reform Judaism and Haskalah, but they are all modern movements. Now, they're very different, obviously, but you know, their, their uh, responses well, it's complex, but you know, they're one of the responses to modernity. Okay? It's a kind of interesting in that regard. So, uh, listen, I have uh, people in class who are not Jewish and so forth, obviously, and uh, you I don't go into super details about each of the Hasidic movements because that's not for them. It's more of an external history to understand this is, uh, the Hasidic movement is the best, fastest growing movement. I mean, let's face it. Uh, and, uh, you know, you try to explain Breslov or something like that. So I give a little bit, but I say, here's a movie. Go watch this movie. And then you'll hop Breslov is. And they always love it. You know, they other words, they say, I get it, you know. So, obviously, this official in the Misrata, Bruce never even saw the movie. Uh, <laughs> and so he say you can't like, you just squeeze it which is kind of funny. It reminded me of a couple of similar incidents in Jewish history, uh, and uh, what he called it? it it's, it's, a, it's strange because, uh, uh, well, I'll get to that later. On Yantif, this is the concatenation of events. So with this in my mind, I said maybe I'll talk about the Shpizan, and he didn't know this, and then something about the Middle Ages, where they also didn't know definitions of terms but uh uh you know, we have two day here in, in America obviously. So uh uh one of the things I did, I pulled out a book that's been on my shelf for a long time. This guy, um B'nai Bina it's called. You know, like I it's uh I think he was an Orthodox rabbi who had a conservative stellar. That's my understanding, uh Rabinowitz is the name, And uh he had like all these book reviews. I think they used to publish them in hadoar I believe. Um of uh, sermonizers of homiletics and one of them was, you know american speakers orthodox conservative reform it's all never written and one of them was milton steinberg who was a famous conservative rabbi way back when he died young uh he wrote the drip as a driven leaf and so forth i never read it but everybody i know has uh and uh, anyway he had a thing about the piece and i said "So hmm conservative rabbi writing about and that's funny and uh, he made the point that you know it's a jewish way of, of trying to welcome the poor and, uh, you know, so he kind of Americanized it, I thought. And I said, that, and I, the way he, he, he described it was nice. And I said, No, yeah, how, how do you like that? You know, it's interesting. I mean, Milton Steinberg came from an Orthodox background, but like all those conservative rabbis way back then. But it's interesting the way he recast it in these terms. But um, meanwhile, I told you, concatenation events, I got an email the other day just for uh, a circus from somebody who said, Hugh do." A podcast on my ancestor the Schlaw. whoa, saw a big topic, so I didn't say yes. But while I was in Shul, I po- you know, what the heck? I pulled out a Shlom, you know the part with the Masechet. You know how it works with the He's got these Masechet. Masechet don't mean Gemara. It's Yom You know, Masechet. Rosh Hashanah is all about the holiday of Rosh Hashanah. Masechet Yom is all about the holiday of Yom Kippur and so forth. So he has a Masechet called Yuma. I'm sorry, a Masechet called Sukkah, which is all about the holiday of Sukkot. It's kind of cool and uh and now they have these new Schlaw sets with them the kudos and you know broken up into easy digestible i think they, in my opinion they've opened up the schlaw. um the same way that you find like the michael was opened up when they put out that new edition uh it, it, i feel very strongly about the, about the Schlaw. so anyway uh so i was just looking over here and uh, flipping through and show and i see as a he, by the way he has a lot of good cute stuff but, uh, here's the thing on the, on the Ushbizen. Now, uh, as I, I talked about this the other day somewhere. Uh, when I grew up, we never did Ushbizen, okay? In my family. Uh, I heard of it, but we never did it. Um, unless, I think most of the people that I know didn't have the practice of reciting the Ushbizen. Uh, no, we're not Hasidish, but anyway, that's what that is. Now, um, we were just uh, religious Jews. Now, and we didn't have a sukkah. Uh, but we used to use a shul sukkah. That's how it was. I live in a place called Forest Park. Camelot, you know, used to be. No longer is. And uh, and we had a shul sukkah very close by our house. And so that's where we used to eat. It was a big sukkah. So, you know, we used to schlep the pots and pans and all that business. This is how it was in America long ago. I don't think I had my own sukkah until I got married. Now, um... So... I was, I, the reason I meant, I'm saying this for a reason so like I said before we bench I mean, you know you had a meal there all we ate all the meals there and so on and so forth um, now uh, which in America was 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 already something because uh, long ago when I was a kid this is just a sociology though the circus had a different character it's just interesting you know um, I've said this many times when I was when I was a kid it was a culture in America, probably in most places, outside of Israel, uh, that nobody had a little of an By that I mean a few people did, most did not. Uh, if you went back to synagogues long ago, big shows, you know, they always had, a, you know, there was a a, a little of an for the rabbi and for the chazen especially, and uh, maybe a few other, uh, you know, uh, I can't even say richy-riches because they there weren't, but, you know, a few other people in well to do, wanted to do it. Uh, I remember as a kid, a little of an ester cost $2.50. Okay. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. That's right, a little of an ester, except from Israel, used to go by Mesh Khan, used to, it was 2 bucks, 3 bucks, And, um, so it wasn't a question of money. But people of a certain age long ago were afraid of the Pachkava. You know, they, they were like nervous if they have a little of ester in the house. It's funny, you know. And uh, what used to be long ago, in America, was you have a lot of shoals, big ones too, and there'd be, uh, a few sets of and there, on one circus, like I say, one was for the rabbi, one was for the chazan, and maybe two or three others, for a few, quote unquote, gevirim. at $2.50, you ain't a gvir, you know, and, uh, and then the shoal itself, had a two or three or four sets, and they would pass it around, and everybody would, everybody made a business, to bench Lulov, but, uh, or bench Asterix, as they call it, but, uh, and they would take it to the women's section, too. And all the ladies would bench yesterday. isn't that interesting? But they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to take it home. Okay? And similarly, so we noticed when you had the Hushinas, you know, when you marched around, there's very few people that marched around with little an esri And uh, during the week, I'm taking you back to another world. Uh, during the week, um, w- w- because my father was a shamas, so, uh, you know, you... you you take the living to house to house. and and uh, you know, and, uh, I'm serious. You take the house to house and people would bench Esther in the house and then you left and they would pay the guy for bringing it to him. You'd give him five bucks or something like that. It was a certain achnosa. Uh, but nobody wanted to own it and have it trouble. I guess they're afraid the, the estrog would break the pitum. That was a nightmare in those days because ever heard of it when I was a kid who heard of an Esther without a pitum? You know, that came later in my life and uh, that grew that way. And anyway, it's a different world. Um, now, there were some exceptions to that. A few shuls are very religious, and everybody had a little master. But today, every Tom's a area. I bought my granddaughter that's right, you know, a little master, you know? It's a, it's a new world. And similarly with a sukkah. It used to be that very few people had a sukkah. There were some, but there were very few people had a sukkah. Instead, most people did the following. They went to Shul, and in Shul, on Yontif, they always have a kiddush or something like this. Everybody would go into the sukkah. The rabbi or someone like this would make a Bray Pryor Guffin and a, a Leisha an for everybody. Or maybe a Mazonas. You know, in those days they had the, the sponge cake, the honey cake. These are things, <laughs> I think, that no longer exist. And, uh, and you know, you make Mazonas and make a Leisha And then everybody went home. You see? This is the folk Judaism, Orthodox Judaism of America, long ago. So uh, not many people did what we did, which was you, you took like, pots and pans, you ate all the meals in the sukkah. But we didn't have any gas, because uh, we ourselves were kind of like gas. Now, I'll tell you where I'm going with this. Um, as opposed, by the way, to the other Yom by Seder, we always had the, uh, gas and uh, poor people and things like that, always. So um, so I'm looking the Shalaf, and I see he brings the, uh, the uh, thing about the Ushbizan. Now, the Ushbizan is not in the Gemara and, uh, you know, normative sources. So it's in the Zohar, okay? And it's a Kabbalistic custom. a uh, Surprise, surprise. And I'm sure there's a deep meaning in it, and I'm serious. And that you'd have to ask my friend, Noah Shaver. He'll give you a whole shot of what happens with the And I mean, you know, with the Or Makif and everything. But um, I just want to read the passage in the Zohar. And it's very interesting. Now, it's in Aramaic, but I have a Hebrew translation. So I'm going to read you, obviously, the Hebrew translation. And it says, Rav Hamnunah Saba, Kishoyenich Lachsusukasho, Hay Sameach. The Rabbenu, when we come to Sukkah and be happy, and we stand at the door to Sukkah, let's invite the guests. Okay, this is Shpizen. Amr Nazmin in Armeg, Nazmin l'Shpizen, right? Nazmin to Orchim. Um, Arch Shulchanov, and he would then make a bracha and he would then make a bracha Leishah Basukah. That, you know, the pasuk, of course, as we all know, says, So how do you translate basukos uh, teshuv Okay? So teshu can mean in the future tense, you shall dwell in sukkos or it can be in the imperative tense, like a certain form of sevoy. Now, it's not sevoy; it would be shavu, but being grammatical. But you know how it goes, in Hebrew, sometimes the future tense is very uh, emphatic, can be a, a an imperative. So basukas teshu sit down in my suka. His yashu il ilyonim his yashu, his yashu or his yashu. So in other words, the way you translate the pasuk is basukos Teshu tivu ushpiz in tivu. In other words, teishvu means tivu, sit down, like like a like a, a command, tivu ushpiz in tivu. Okay, and. um and then Rav Hamnuna would raise his hands happily and say, <laughs> So basically, he would, um, if I get this, if I understand this correctly, he'd come to the Zulka, he'd make the Bracha of Lesha B'Sukkah, and then, um, now, I don't want to get too halachic over here, you know in terms of of a hefzik, but let's say but going by what it reads he would make the bracha and then it would say basukus tashu his yashu orchem and then he would sit down and be and and that would be his le she that not be his his bracha. so i mean the truth is you say once you're standing up you have to sit down so that's how he would do it uh ve and then he would continue the pasig The Pasig is of course as we know Basukas Teshu, Shiva's Yamim, Kalho Ezrachi, Yeshu Basukos. So he would say it like this. There are two halves of the Pasig, A and B. The first is if it's Basukas Teshu. I repeat, how do you translate that? Basukas Teshu. Hey you guys, Teshu, sit down. So that he would address to the Ushbizin, Hey guys, sit down. And then he would go on to say, Kalho Ezrahi Israel, Yeshu Basukos. All regular Jews should sit in the sukkah. So that's us. So basically, first you, guests sit down, and then all Jews just sit down. So I kind of assume from this that his family was there, and he would say, he would come in and make a lesheb a sukkah. I repeat, this is the source of the practice, of the of the minute. So he would enter the sukkah, he would make a brach of lesheb, uh, leaving aside the question, you know, that Machlokas and the Rishonim, whether you make a Leishah B'shuk every time you walk in, whatever, let's leave that alone. Right? Uh, he would come in, and he would make a Baruch Leishah and then he would say, sit down, my guest. And then he would turn to the rest of his family and say, You guys also sit down. And that was the practice. Anybody does this, is what they call B'tzel Ho'amunah, or B'tzel Ho'amunah, as we say and then the Zohar goes on to say, it's proper to have this practice of welcoming these Orchem b'olam and that way you have Simcha, Olam hazeh Olam Ba. What does that mean? I'm sitting at the table, let's say I'm Rami Hanuna, I got my family over here, so that's Olam hazeh, and I got my guests from heaven, and that's Olam Haba. All are together once in the sukkah. Okay? Very nice. Uh but, then he goes on to say like this, however, you're missing a component. Ha-chashem i-cholele shetserach l But the most important element is you have to have poor people there. Huma ma hatam fi fi-she-shar-sham shal-or-cham shal-osem-or-cham cham sh shar shaniyem That the show, isn't that, and that's mystical talk. Okay? That's mystical talk. Uh, in Aramaic, he says, al-khodo boi l-mech-zeh l-mech-teh l you have to have over there, My timer, begin the chukah, the inun the zamin, the The of these, uh, is the miskena. So basically, as I understand it, not that I'm an expert, but but remember, the shloss putting it in here, not for the experts. So he says, as I understand it, it means like this. Um, when you're inviting the guests, the, f- the food I'm making for Avmavinu, I'm giving to the poor person. In other words, when I have a poor person there in the sukkah as my guest, and I give him food as a guest, I am, quote-unquote, feeding Avmavinu, or giving a meal to Yitzhak or to Yaakov. That's the idea. That that's, a, you know, the chelik, the inu nishpisen, the zamen, the You know, Miskin is a poor. it's in And Azor goes on to say, if you sit here, and you invite these a guests. I will no but you don't have any poor people, so but, which is what most people do, right? You have a meal, you have your family there, something like that, and that's it. And then you say, "Ooh, tibush blah blah blah." Uh, but you don't, but the, so Avram Yitzhak, Yaakov and so forth show up, but there's nobody there other than the family. Then the guests. The Ushbizen turn away in disgust. Beomrim, and they say, and they quote a pasigan, Mishle, Al tilcham es ra oyim. Don't eat the food of a stingy person. Shaosam, shulchan, shaorach, shalharoahu, below shalhar kadish Okay? The uh, the the takin delay, the takin, the bread that the guy prepared, the food he prepared, is from him, meaning it's below the kutshebrichu. So in other words, it's it's from the like the you know the, the, the dark side. Meaning it turns out to be a negative meal. So much so that it's disgusting. What do you mean so much disgusting? He goes on to say, that I'll throw like dung on your holiday. Meaning God regards the, the offerings you give him as as perish, as dung, uh which is pretty disgusting, right? And v'lo chagai. And it goes on to say, Woe to the person who 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 has to experience the embarrassment that Avram walks in, or Yitzhak walks in, checks the place out, sees no poor people, and walks out. <laughs> Your guest walks out in disgust. Okay? sorry, Gets up from the meal and says, no, I don't want to eat here. Okay? And... Uh, So that's pretty amazing. So the idea is you invite in the Shpizan, but the point is not just it's totally ceremonial. Uh, You invite in the Shpizan and you have a meal for them. No, you have food set aside for them. So let's say, for example, I'm just making this up. Let's say I had five people in my family. So I set aside six portions one for each member of my family, five of us, you know, and then one for Avram, or another night, one for Yitzhak, or another night, one for Yaakov, and so on and so forth. Uh, however, that sixth portion should be a poor person. <laughs> you, you get it? An ani, or something like that. Uh, and so the, the meal that that sixth person, the guest, the ani, is eating, that's the Yitzhak part, that's the Yaakov part, that's the Moshe part, that's the Aaron part. So if you don't do it, you don't do it. Um, and, and otherwise, it's a bummer. So the bottom line is, you know, if you have such a custom in your family that you always have aneum and that sort of thing in there, fine. Then that's the meaning of those reason. But if you do like most people, I think, most people have family there, thank God. They have, you know, friends and guests and that sort of thing. Uh, but not he's not losers, not this, that, and the other. Um, then, then it's is, is almost like counterintuitive. In other words, don't invite the guests. You follow? Don't invite the guests. Now, I have no idea why we didn't do this piece. Maybe because we didn't have guests. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think my father was into the Shla and not into the Zohar. But uh, I think it's very interesting. And this all happened to me yesterday. And it turns out that this sermon that Milton Steinberg gave was nothing but a quote from the Zohar. And he probably saw the Shla or something like that. Or some it was brought to his attention. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's just not his own vart. It's, uh, so it turns out that the Ushpizan ceremony is like the Misrata Briyut, you know? In other words, without knowing it. That the Ushpizan really is really supposed to be a human being guest. You understand? The human being guest, by that I mean an oni, a poor person. Uh, That person is the, the person that when he eats the food, it's like the Ushpizan is eating the food. I think it's very interesting. As far as I know, I'm not that I've ever gone into this except this year, um i'm not in a in person uh but i do say it now because my wife you know i got married and i married a religious girl so she made me money so she likes to do all these things that we never did but um what do you call it the essence of it is do you have the poor person here to me if you don't then the piece is sort of like uh stupid and it's in other words, based on this anyway counterintuitive now, maybe some guy will come along, I'm serious, I'm not the expert in this, and say, no, no, there's something deeper in this, and blah, 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 Kenzine, you know, I don't know, uh, but uh, based on what I just saw, it's pretty straightforward. No, he's quoting straight from the Zohar, and the Shalom himself is interpreting it with the words I just said, which is, you better have a poor person there to take the Kalik of the Yishmizam. So, at least up to the 17th century, <laughs> you see that this is how it was understood, but like everything I'm just saying it's funny. Imagine some richy-riches, that there's some fancy hotel, not in the Corona year. They're at the Waldorf face in Ushalayim, you know, one of these rich things. And uh, uh, one thing they don't have there is poor people at the table. And, uh, you know, it's in Penthouse uh, Sukkah, <laughs> in the middle of the newest uh, area of Jerusalem. They say, oh, Tibu, Shpiz, and Avram of Yaakov, Shpiz, Eloy, and all the rest of it, is baloney. <laughs> uh, now, maybe I'm wrong. What I mean by that is like this. I mentioned this in my show, and, you know, somebody immediately said as well. Uh, what about if you give money to Abbas Yisrael? What if you give money to a, a charity to, that provides food for the poor? We well, have such things in Baltimore. I'm sure you have where you are also. Uh, that's sort of yeshivish. Get it? In other words, before Yuntif, I wrote a check. It, it could be. I don't know. I'm not a mystic. Nobody knows. But it's a little bit funny. You know, Avram Bidu shows up in your Yosuke and says, so listen, Avram. I got a food here right now, but look, if you check out my PayPal, you'll see I made a donation. <laughs> you see? Right? Look at the Zell, you know, I made a donation. It's its the 21st century of the version of the Spisen, Uh if Avram Avinu going to be interested in this and that. Could be. You know, I don't know. Now, just before I did this, I went online just to look at what they have on the Spisen. Maybe it's something I don't know about all the rest of it. But I didn't see anything, but uh, but but. I'll say only this, which struck me as uh, very logical, but I don't know if it's identical with this. Uh, and that is, I just saw somebody quote from, uh, what's the name, the Panini Halacha, you know, the rabbi in Israel, uh, Rabbi Melamed, who writes these very good halacha things, you know, and they're very popular now in Israel, I believe. Uh, I think it's called Panini Halacha, right? In Harbracha, right? And uh, he said something, he's very good, and he said something Along the following lines, which is very true, and that is, he says, today you don't see so many aniyim, but you do see a lot of umlalim and something like mutz atzbanim or something like that. I mean, people who are um, depressed or have or right now are not in a fortunate situation in life. Uh, let's leave it at that, and uh, that's true. And so, ken Zine, that when the Zohar talks about ani. It doesn't simply mean, as used to be the case, people don't have food. Because I think the idea, I think, the idea of the Zohar is, there's something disgusting, that you have a sukkah, and you have food, and, you know, a few blocks away from you, whatever, lives a poor person, and who doesn't have a sukkah and doesn't have food, does not have food, and you're saying, uh, you know, come on in, Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu, he's not supposed to imitate Avram Avinu. he's supposed to imitate Avram And Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Moshe, and all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, that, so there were poor people. I have a guy in my shul, who's a Sephardi, and he said, you know, when he grew up in Yerushalayim, the old Yerushalayim, I think Shkuna Bukharim, I think, uh, you know, old school, you know, before they ate a meal in the sukkahs or, or ever, you know, his mother sent him with portions of food to poor families. You know what I mean? Like on Friday nights or Yant Nights. That is what the Zohar is talking about. But I think it's also true that what Rabbi, uh, what do you call it, the Pani Alocha guy, I think he's right, you know, to invite people who are umlalim and atzbanim and that sort of thing. Nowadays, in our middle-class society, really, you know, is like what the Zohar is talking about, I think. Um, you know, uh, because it's not a question of financial uh, problem, but a, it is a question of um, of umlal problem. And the Rambam also, I remember, uses this Lashon, because a lot of what you see over here is sort of paralleled uh, in the Rambam and Hilchus uh, Yontav. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, where he says, anybody who has a meal on Yontav, done that, but doesn't have a poor person there, is disgusting. I think he has that pasuk of his Per perashal Gechem. You look in the Mishnah Torah, uh, I'm sure many of you have seen it one time or another. If not, take the trouble to open up, I think the last chapter or so of Yontav, one of them. is very interesting, very eloquent there, the Rambam, very eloquent. Uh, about the need for you know helping the aneim. Um so I just thought this is kind of interesting. Now, um, uh, very interesting in fact. Now, I st- what li- originally led me to this was that uh, the guy in Israel thought those bees are just like Stom guests. Uh, you know, he obviously never heard of the custom, which shows you the chasm between the those who are familiar with. It's not simply the frum and the fry. It's those who are familiar with Jewish uh, culture and those who really are uh, radically me and simply don't know the traditional Jewish culture. Let alone whether you personally are observant. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that have you heard of Shabbos? Have you heard of Shalom Aleichem? Have you heard of, uh, you know what I mean, uh, Havdalah? Or, or do these words mean nothing to him? Obviously, Ushbizim meant nothing to him. Uh, <laughs> and it reminded me of... Uh, uh, back in the 1200s, you know, when they had their famous case where they burned the Gemaras. Uh I think I might well spoke about it once before. I think. You know, for a long time, the, uh, the Catholic Church never really heard about the Talmud. Not really. Uh, they thought that the Jews in the Jewish communities are stupid and dumb and narrow-minded and have cataracts on their eyes and obviously the truth of Yashka and so forth. Fine. And the Jews said, okay, good. Uh, but they didn't interfere in what was going on within the Dalai Lama's of Jewish culture, within the Jewish communities. And when they saw yeshivas and that sort of thing, they thought they are all studying the Old Testament. They weren't simply aware of the Talmud, except in the most broad way. Uh, and all that changed in the 13th century, for a whole bunch of reasons that have to do with the developments within the Catholic Church. But already in 1215, at the Lateran Council, they started being Ma'ayin, shall we say, into the Jews and the Muslims. And uh, they weren't totally unaware that there are negative references to Yashka and all kind of Christian things in the in Talmud, which there are. If you have an uncensored version of the Talmud, uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you get the Steinsals uh, of Odazaro, uh, he's got all the Christian references in there. You know, He, he chose to reprint that all of it in the Gemara and Rashi and Ptosis. You know, right, whether he did it right or wrong, but that's what he did. So... It's very famous that there was a guy, Nicholas Donin, who was an uh ex Yeshiva guy, who uh it's hard to tell exactly what the story was is with him, but the best I can make out of it is he's somebody who must have had uh, all kind of questions when he was in Yeshiva. Now he was in the most important yeshiva in Paris. Believe it or not, the number one tosos yeshiva in the early thirteenth century was in Paris, that's a Paris. We don't usually think of Paris. As a as a Malcham Torah, but it, it, you know, the Paleotosis in the eleven hundreds were in these little towns, but in the twelve hundreds they moved more to cities, and um uh you know, their Beinat was in some little place nobody ever heard of Rahamer or whatever. So um, he was in that yeshiva. I think I mean I'm going to say something you're going to laugh at what I'm saying, but I don't mean it to be funny. I think he was sort of like a. Uh, I think he's sort of like um, like a Slifkin type or a Avi Weiss type thing. I could be right. something like that, which alienated other people in Yeshiva. And uh, at one point, they put him in Chirim, to Paris. I mean, declare him a heretic, which must have taken a lot because Jews don't easily declare somebody a heretic, especially in the Middle Ages. Maybe nowadays, in some circles, <laughs> they, they declare by a heretic in two minutes, but not... Not in the time of our ancestors uh, and this was a big mistake and the reason big mistake is you just get the guy PO'd and then he's going to uh, you know eventually get poisoned against you i think i told you once the Marum lublin has in the tube he says you get you deal with a mummer you know you leave him alone or kill him but don't uh, put him in khairm or something like that because, or or torture him because he'll get back at you and this is what happened over here uh it's a long long story but to cut to the chase you know in 1225 i think to put him in khairm and took him 10 years of stewing in anger. And then, and, and he began, eventually, he was one, for a long time, he didn't convert to Christianity, but eventually did. And when he did, he told, he wrote to the Pope and he said, the Gemara is full of all kind of anti-stuff. The Talmud has all kind of blasphemies against Christianity, which it does, and uh, against Goyim, which it kind of does. And um, the Pope blew a fuse and famously said, I like, guess, arrest Rabbi Talmud. Was it a Pope or one of his officials? And this reminds me of the, you know, put Rabbi Talman on trial. They thought Tom was a guy. Uh, until it was Ms. Barra, of course, that it was the name of a series of books. And by the time the whole thing's over, they burned all the books. You know, there's a whole long story to it, but that's what happened. And that, by the way, means that this guy really got his revenge. Because they basically burned, as far as we can tell, all or most of the Gemaras that existed in, in, in France... The Pope wanted this to be all over Europe, but the other kings didn't pay attention. But the king in France at that time was a real frummy Catholic. Louis the Ninth, nice, uh, St. Louis as they call him. And uh, he really had it out for the Jews, among other things, as a real frummy Catholic. And by the time it's over, they burned everything, and that's the end of the ptosis. Um, You know, that happened in 1242, I believe it was. And uh, within a decade or two, all the rabbis left and went to Israel. You know, not all, but the vast majority. And uh, the TOSIS period was kind of like over, uh, for the most part. So, uh, but again, you know, go arrest the Talmud. Obviously, I'm not surprised that a Catholic official in the 13th century never heard what the Talmud is. I'm more surprised that somebody in Israel <laughs> didn't know uh, what uh, the Shbizan is. And thirdly, <laughs> came to my mind the famous uh, Bayless trial, uh, you know, 100 years ago, in 1912, I guess. When the Tsarist government in Russia, um, the Attorney General, accused this guy of uh, doing a blood libel, of killing this uh, Christian girl, murdering her in Kiev for the purpose of using her blood to make matzah. And I mean, in the 20th century, I want you to understand, that means the the, the Justice Department in Russia, and they had a Justice Department, even though you might laugh at it, but it was anti-Semitic, but they actually um, had a fair trial system. This is after the judicial reforms of Alexander II in the 1860s. I don't have to go into it, but they reformed the justice system. I and mean, you actually had a fair system in Tsarist Russia. Uh, it sounds funny. And, uh, of course, they arrested this guy, Bayless. The whole thing was a trumped-up charge, obviously. And uh, the government was so... In, you know, this is Nicholas II, who was a jerk and a half. And he probably believed all this himself. He believed and the government people believed they were so anti-Semitic, a holy sinner, that they really believed that the Jews are devils and, uh, you know, do the blood libel and the matzah and the blood and all the rest of it. And they were determined to prove it. Now, how are you going to prove it? And they wanted to say that, that this, the guy who did it was a from Jew and he was simply carrying out a ritual of the Jewish religion which requires you to kill Christian children and use the blood. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing this happened in the 20th century. And... Uh, What's famous is that, you know, who, who, who are you going to get? Let me put it this way. So who's your expert testimony? Because if it's a jury trial, and it was a jury trial, you have to make the case that the Jewish religion is actually in favor of this. Now, how does one establish that? So, uh, you know, you have to get somebody reputable. Where are you going to get a reputable uh, person in Russia to say something like that? Uh, I mean, somebody who's actually reputable. And the end of the story is they got a Catholic priest. His name was Pernitis. Was a Lithuanian, actually, and he said he's the expert on the Talmud, and he knows that the Jews do all this kind of stuff. And uh, but uh, and he testified and all the rest of it. The Gemara is in favor of this, of course. There's a whole bunch of quotes you can always find from the Gemara: Tosha Bagoim Haro, you know what I mean? Things like that, and uh, there are plenty. And uh, but it doesn't say anywhere you can go kill somebody use the blood. I mean, obviously, and. The Jewish lawyer, not the lawyer for the defense was Grusenberg, Oscar Grusenberg, who wasn't from, but he was a, a proud Jew. And um, uh, and he said, you know, we will bust the government. We will destroy their case uh, because they have nothing to uh, stand on, of course. And we're Jewish people are proud. And we're not being judged by the Tsarist government. Uh, you know, the Tsarist government will be judged by the truth of history. And in his famous statement in Yiddish, he said, Jewish people is a as a Eisen jewish people as a, a is an anvil upon which many hammers have struck and, been, and the hammers have been broken and uh now he wasn't so learned about Judaism, but he had some Jewish advisors i forget who it was and you know after it's all over, every rabbi says it was me and the bottom line is this guy Pronitus was a phony it was like a three dollar bill and to show him up. And when he cross-examined them, the priest, when the Jewish lawyer cross-examined the priest, he said, "Guess if you're an expert on the Talmud, I want you to tell me this. In what century did Baba Kama live? <laughs> and the priest said, I guess, how am I supposed to remember the name of all the rabbis and when they lived? No, he was almost the right So I he never heard of Baba Kama. <laughs> you understand? And, and of course, he then made the case that, you know, the Baba Kama's name of a book and that your so-called expert is a blockhead. And that's not the only reason, but that's part of the reason why uh, at the end, the jury uh, was declared innocent. Now, actually, they didn't declare innocent. The jury, this, this is this interesting. The jury said, um, we, be, we believe he did it because they were peasants from the Ukraine. So he said, we're convinced that he did it, but unfortunately, there's no evidence to support that conclusion, so we have to find him not guilty. <laughs> you know? That shows you what is a fair trial system. knows. we think he did it, but we have to go by the by the evidence, and there's no evidence, or, you know, and uh, so therefore the, the trial ended um, in that way, and the Tsar of Russia was so angry, Nicholas II, he said, we're going to retry this, you know what I'm saying, because we're going to get that Jew. Can you believe what a mom's story was? And uh, but then the First World War broke out, 1914, and they said, well, we'll shelve it. When the war, the Tsar said, like this: when the war's over, we'll retry this. Well, guess what? <laughs> Before the war ended, the czar was shot. It was his whole family in a cellar in 1918. So the whole thing never happened. But sometimes you have these cases, like this guy with the Ushbizan, or with the guy looking for the rabbi whose name is Talmud, or for the rabbi whose name is Babakama, where there's such a a chasm, a gap, in the culture between the two sides that the most uh, absurd, (laughs) um, you know, what should I say, uh, phenomena that take place and I thought that was kind of cute on the holiday of, uh, of circus. And uh, with that, I bid you a good and For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.